0: Eat Drink Social. My name is Courtney Sandora, and throughout this podcast series, you'll be hearing from myself and the Go Social team. Go Social is a PR and social media marketing firm with offices in Denver, Colorado, and Louisville, Kentucky. We'll be discussing social media trends and influencer best practices in the food and beverage landscape. If you have any questions and want to reach out, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Go Social, or you can visit our website at
1: goforthbesocial.com.
0: Today we're joined with Zach Johnston, the drinks editor for Uprock's Magazine. As a spirits expert, Zach reviews brands from across the industry and serves as a judge for some of the top industry competitions, uh, like the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. Uh, He's best known for his whiskey reviews and roundups. Uh, Zach gives his honest feedback to fans and readers who are searching to find the best of the best spirits brands. Welcome, Zach. We're so excited to have you on today's podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and uh, I'm a big fan.
0: Thank you so much. Well, we'll just dive right into the first question. Can you just share a little bit about yourself and uh, how you found your beginnings in the spirits industry?
1: Yeah, I sort of, uh, I kind of come from a family that was in the service industry. My mom grew up like cooking in her parents' diner and I sort of grew up in my, you know, kind of doing prep in my grandma and mom's luncheonette when I was a kid, worked my way through college in um, kitchens and serving uh, bars and things like that. So it's always been part of my life to be sort of in the drinks, food world. Um, from there, I traveled around the world a lot sort of develop my palate. I got into whiskey in the early 2000s through Talisker, actually. Uh, my father-in-law introduced me to it on a trip to Scotland. I got into bourbon when I was in film school in L.A. in the mid-aughts, because uh, my best friend there, we played cribbage, and he was a manager of Vendome. Uh, liquor which is on Riverside and Burbank it's a very popular liquor store and he sort of gave me a education about bourbon and we drank a lot of very good bourbons back then that are now very expensive today and we sort of kick ourselves for not seeing into the future Then um, I worked in a documentary film in Berlin for a while I also worked in very high-end cocktail bars in Berlin a Victoria Bar and Rum Trader where I sort of honed my spirits Uh, abilities and palate, and sort of working directly with people uh, who care deeply about the industry and serving amazing drinks. I was very lucky to be uh, mentored by Stefan Weber and Beate Hindemann, who uh, co-wrote The Art of Sophisticated Drinking and co-owned Victoria Bar in Berlin, which is one of the most prestigious cocktail bars in Europe. And then uh, I started writing for Epronox in 2015. Uh, as sort of a freelance travel food drink uh writer and over the years uh through the wonderful mentorship of steve barmucci my managing editor and now editorial director of the Life section sort of allowed me to kind of help him build the drinks section out to what it is today and over the course of the last few years i have really kind of circled back to whiskey scotch and bourbon mostly as a, a focal point of what i do at to the point where like 90% of what I do is whiskey. The other 10% is, you know, tequila, rum, a little bit of champagne, a little bit of travel, a little bit of food. And yeah, here I am.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I feel like you've been on quite the journey. Um, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, It's really interesting to hear how you got your beginnings. Um, Especially you said in, in, when you're out in LA um, in college and you, first dabbled with whiskey and bourbon did you have um which brand did you kind of start with or were you kind of introduced like to the Jack Daniels or Woodford Reserves first?
1: I think I think when I was younger my grandfather always had a Jack Daniels sort of on the shelf for guests Mm -hmm. and like the old crow in the garage for you know like rock that um when I was in college Austin Nichols, which became Wild Turkey, was something I always enjoyed. Um, Then when I really got into it with my friend in L.A., uh, it was more high-end stuff. So at the time, this is very Mm -hmm. contextual, at the time, we were drinking Black Maple Hill and Pappy Van Winkle, Mm -hmm. 20-year-old, and all these bourbons that are impossible to get at now. But back then in the mid-aughts, they were just expensive bourbons. They weren't impossible to get. Right. Um, and so that sort of like took my, my palate and my sort of love of bourbon to a new level because it was something that is, has very specific parameters. So you, there's only so much space to move in when making a bourbon. And that's sort of what makes it great. You know, if, if you have guardrails up, people tend to really tune in and dial things up even higher because they can't go outside of those guardrails. And that's what got me interested in the bourbon as something that I'd already enjoyed in the Scotch whiskey scene with Alistair and things like that, mm-hmm. was the ability for whiskey makers even back then to really tune up their whiskeys while still same, staying basically the same parameters as a, you know a $9 Jim Bean or a, a $12 Austin Nichols back then, Wild Turkey, um, and just so much more that they could do with basically the same thing. Fascinating.
0: Yeah. For sure. Um, No, that's a really um, insightful take, um, just as you've kind of seen the whiskey industry grow and change um, from when you, you know, from when you got your start and kind of your, um, you know, expertise and enthusiasm for the industry. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen it change today from, you know, when you, you know, how you're talking about, you know, the happy Van Winkle's of the world, those types of brands who, you know, were well known, but not as viral uh, as they are today. Can you share a little bit about, um, you, you know, your thoughts on the landscape and um, how you've seen positive change and also maybe um, just, you know, the viralness of, you know, limited edition brands and um, also the special, you know, LTO releases. Can you share your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember that, you know, eras change the way people look at things all the time. Um, and we're in a very, very big unprecedented whiskey boom, not de- not just for bourbon, but for all spirits, really. Um, back then, you know, back in the day, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, when I was sort of coming into the scene, bourbon was the cheap American alternative. Like it was very much viewed as subpar, just what you get when you want something to just get drunk on It's not something you think about, it's not something you revere, it's not something you savor. It's just regular bourbon, and that started to change because of you know people like Chris Norris at Wood- Woodford Reserve, Julian Van Winkle III releasing you know higher age statements, um, you know, Elmer T. Lee releasing Blatt and Single Barrel in 84. People were pushing for that eliteness, you know, all the way back in the 70s and 80s into the 90s. Just no one was really paying attention because Scotch and Japanese whiskey were already icons of the high-end whiskey scene and seemed unattainable to, you know, sort of battle it out with. But then, kind of, I guess, ironically, you know, it was the Japanese market that helped Blattens and bourbon stay alive in the 80s because of that single barrel release. And they loved it over there and they bought it and, you know, what's now Buffalo Trace was able to survive because of that. And so that reverence that started in Japan for Blattens in the eighties eventually trickled over here, literally decades later Mm -hmm. um, to the point where even 10 years ago, you could walk into a store and get a Blattens for 60, 50, 60 bucks, you know. And back then, I remember in the mid 2000s, early 2010s, people complaining and thinking it's insane to pay 50 bucks for a bottle of bourbon. Like, just that was insanity. Um, and now today, you know, you have. (laughs) Thousands and thousands of people lining up for the opportunity to buy a Blattens for 60 bucks.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so that's how much it's changed. Whether that's good or bad, I mean, that's sort of depending on where you fall, I think, economically, sort of politically. If you are looking at the free market, then, you know, the desire for these things are going to drive the price. It's the same in shoes. You know, Nike ones cost what Nike ones cost. And Nike benefits from people paying five thousand dollars for a shoe and lining up for six hours to get it. It's the same thing with Rolexes. You know, you can get a date just in in Germany for five thousand euros, and you can turn around and sell that exact same watch in New York for fifteen thousand. So mm-hmm. it's not unique to bourbon, and you know, bourbon's just following along with Scotch and wine and brandy anyway. Um, and so, if you kind of adhere to that economic value. And it's just what it is. This is how the market's going to work. You know, If you're sort of nostalgic and you're longing for more parity and more, I guess, equality, then I don't see where that's going to happen in a capitalist system. I mean, you know, these companies are making a product and they put a price on that product and then the market's going to dictate how much that product costs. And mm-hmm. I always go back to one core component. Not all bourbons, especially not all whiskeys, are going to get an inflated price point and be so expensive. They're just not. For the key factor that they're just not as good, the the whiskeys generally, and this is generally there are of course exceptions that you see go to these huge price points, like you know a Pappy Twenty or a, you know a Blattens, uh straight from the barrel or a, a Michter's you know twenty year or things like that that get these huge inflated aftermarket price points, do because they taste amazing, they're unique, they have a beautiful flavor profile, and so they have something that entices people to them. On top of which they have rarity, so that combination of rarity and excellence in quality creates that inflated price and creates a market that's very, very feels famine-driven because there's so few of it out there. The thing that's changing is that all of these distilleries, all these companies, are massively increasing their production. Like Buffalo Trace doubled their production, well, Wild Turkey's doubled their production. Four roses is doubled their production. Mm-hmm. So there is going to be more of this whiskey out there. And what you're sort of seeing now as well, as opposed to having this huge secondary market price, I kind of feel what's coming along is, you know, companies like Sazerac, which owns Buffalo Trace, are going to start being like, Well, you know, we're putting this bourbon out for ninety nine dollars a bottle, it's selling on the market for a thousand. We're just gonna put a price up to four ninety nine a bottle and you're gonna be able to get it once the production catches up, as opposed mm-hmm. to there's you know, eighteen thousand bottles at ninety nine dollars, and you have to pay twenty five hundred if you can find one. To well now there's thirty six thousand bottles and they're four ninety nine, and you can kind of find it. And I think that's where it's sort of heading to the point where there'll be more. It'll be more or less the same price as expensive as it is now, but it'll, the as opposed to the retailer getting that huge markup, a lot more mm-hmm. money is going to be going back to the corporations who are making this whiskey. It's a very long-winded answer. I hope I I I answered your question there.
0: Yes, for sure, that was very insightful. I I appreciate your your thoughts on that. I think um, it's definitely an an exciting time. And um, do you, from your take, um, I know you know your expertise, um, you know, is in the media. um, You know, you're a whiskey writer. I know you're also on social media too. But do you think, um, you know, a little bit of the uh, advance in the industry and excitement, you know, comes from writers like yourself, but also these um, bourbon enthusiasts, bourbon influencers sharing on social media, which you know wasn't necessarily as big as it is today. About you know ten twenty years ago.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, you know people always worry that there's going to be a big bubble bust like there was in the '70s when vodka took over uh, the U.S. scene. Uh, and I don't really see that happening again because the 70s, I mean, they were only advertising in, you know, Playboy and Esquire and Vogue and on billboards, like there's nowhere else to get to the consumer. Today, with the advent of, you know, whiskey influencers online, with the, the dearth of media covering bourbon, whiskey, scotch, everything, It's the the market's so much more saturated that I kind of believe that... the consumer is that much more savvy like there are still consumers Mm -hmm. coming into the market every day who are of course you know have questions and have you know they don't understand like you know what makes something different a bourbon or whiskey etc but there's so much information out there now there's so many people willing to provide education that by the time someone reaches you know if they want by the time someone reaches drinking age they could already have an education about this stuff that's better than you know, most people would get in a lifetime back in mm-hmm. the 50s, the 70s, during the last period. And that education, I believe, sort of uh, breeds people who care more about this stuff. Because, you know, the the ability to reach the consumer in a real way is unprecedented right now in mm-hmm. the history of marketing, really, or any product. And so I find it a net positive overall, um, even, you know... People decry, you know, influencing or, you know, blog writing and things like that as, you know, sort of taking advantage of brands or things like that. But it's all a job at the end of the day. Like, I'm doing a, a job. I go to, you know, I show up at work. I have to turn in, you know, two posts a day. I, you know, I have goals I need to meet. I, You know, it, it's a job like any other job. My job just happens to be I get to uh, taste and sample whiskeys all day. hmm uh, but that also leads you. Know, I'm also a judge in the San Francisco's World Spirits Competition and John Barley Forum, yep. You know, things like that. I also do consulting where I help people, uh, organizations uh, pick barrels and uh, find connections so uh, companies can find barrels for their releases. And I, I do things like that on the back end. And so, and a lot of people who I respect who are even in the whiskey influencing scene do that too. Mm-hmm. They are they're, they're judging, they are, you know, uh, picking barrels and releases with big brands. And, you know, it comes to a point is like, w- what's enough for you to respect a person in this industry? Like, what do they have to do to get your respect? Because most of the people I know and associate with, um, whether it be on Instagram or through blogging or through judging or through bars or through the uh, industry people I know in Kentucky here where I live, you know, we all live and breathe this stuff to the point where it has become our lives, right? And so, you know, we have palettes that have been developed over years and years and years. And, you know, the best of us are the ones who travel and eat and experience because we want to build our palate even further so we can understand things like a, a glass of whiskey even better. And so for me, when you see people doing that and still being like, oh, they're just an Instagram influencer, I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Like they've mm-hmm. devoted their life to something helping you find the best drink for your palate in your life, you know, what's wrong with that? Like that's, that's a, it's almost noble endeavor because it is about finding, you know, something for someone to enjoy at its core. And that's sort of how I look at that. And I, you know, I really try to be positive. Like, you know, there's enough negativity in the world. I don't need to be negative about someone who's posting about whiskey on Instagram when they're just trying to enjoy something they love and share that wealth
0: for sure. No, that was a wonderful response. I, I appreciate your take on that too and like you said at the end of the day, you know, you're doing a job and um it's amazing to see it come full circle when you can, you know, not only connect with consumers but connect with brands and um get people excited about the industry. So, um definitely appreciate your take on that. Um speaking of, you know, your role as as a blogger and, you know, as a whiskey expert, um what types of, you know, new brand campaigns or new products, you know, capture your attention in this, um, you know, cluttered market, um, what stands out to you and, and what gets you excited to to write about and to share about?
1: You know, it's, it's sort of fascinating because I feel like, you know, five, 10 years ago, even, it was always about the story. Like everybody wanted a story behind the brand, right? Like they wanted to hear about, you know, why are these two brothers, you know, making Tennessee whiskey, you know, and, or why, why is, you know, this uh, woman in Scotland, you know, this doctor, chemistry doctor making whiskey, like they really, really wanted a story. And I think people still do want a story. But I feel like now people want more responsibility. Um, and I think the brands know that to a point where it's more, I think right now and going forward, it's going to be more important. Like, what are you doing for oak forests in Missouri to make sure that we still have oaks in 50 years from now and an oak forest to enjoy as people and as? Uh, our environment is sustained because you know it takes a lot to make barrels and so i feel like companies are shifting more towards looking at you know we know the story of why we're making this but how are we going to make it actually last this time and you know looking at farmers who are growing the corn or the barley you, know, you look at uh, companies like Waterford in Ireland they're almost entirely barley farmer focused and you have know, a Cladi in Ireland also does this. They focus on the farmers growing their barley and how they can help them create a sustainable organic product, but also how important these farmers are to the process and you know making sure they're paid correctly, making sure they you know have a, a good life when they're growing something that is so crucial to their business and you know not tangentially at its core. And I feel, you know, for me personally, I'm starting to ask a lot more questions about that. About the people, like how much are the people who are building the the barrels at Kelvin Cooperage or you know I S C or wherever? How much are those guys or those people getting paid? How much are the people getting paid who are growing the corn or who are driving the trucks or are bringing the corn to the distillery? How much are the distillery workers getting paid? I feel like you know we often look at this industry as this luxurious thing. You know, you pay fifty dollars for a bottle of bourbon and it's you know it's a luxury special day item. But the amount of hands of people who have touched that bottle of whiskey—from the timber to the lumber to the truck drivers to the farmers to the, you know, the the malters to the the truck drivers there to everybody in the distillery, everybody in the cooperage, everybody in the bottling plant, everybody driving out to get to the liquor store or to the restaurant to the service industry to the retailers to the marketers to the PR people to the bloggers to the influencers like we're talking about thousands of people have touched every single bottle of whiskey that's on the shelf and the fact that you can get a bottle of very very good bourbon for under 20 bucks like wild turkey 101 1999 blows my mind so I feel like as we become more aware of workers' rights and living wage and things that are important to us as a society for people to actually be part of, you know, any industry, not just whiskey, but any industry. It's important to know how the people who are making this whiskey are actually living and taking care of and paid, I think, as part of the sustainability conversation. You know, yes, it is 100% important that we're you know, using regenerative farming to grow the grains. It's 100% important to talk about water sources and regeneration of water sources and, you know, what they're doing with with you know, what they have to throw away and put back into uh the environment is one hundred percent important talking about keeping forests sustainably growing, you know, for the next centuries. it's all that's important. And another key component which I think needs to be talked about more is the people. You know, making sure the people are taken care of, making sure people are paid well, making sure that, you know, the people get their due in making this whiskey. And the reason I sort of come around to this is when you make a whiskey or any spirit really, you know, at the end of the day, the first half of that process is a recipe. It's science, we're talking about fermentation, water, grains, yeast, sometimes lactobacillus, bacteria, it's a recipe that is made, you know, it is one of those things where not anyone can do it, but it is there's a dictate you can follow. Same with distillation, not anyone can do it, but it is a recipe, it is a science then you get into aging. When when that whiskey goes into a barrel, that's where the magic comes in. And that's what people who truly care about whiskey shine the most. And because it takes a person to blend a whiskey, to find those barrels, to you know get it actually into the bottle, it's people who are making this stuff. There's it, their mach- machinery, of course, but people matter most to making whiskey. And I think we need to focus more on making sure the people who are making whiskey get proper representation, are properly paid, get their due in the whole process you know the the kid rolling barrels in you know a warehouse for 20 bucks an hour is just as important as the master distiller who's out there making sure that the what's in those barrels it gets into the right bottle is just as important as you know the marketer or the retailer who's making sure that the consumer can actually get it who's just as important as the the person out there in the forest making sure that the oak is growing correctly right and so I think now we need to start focusing on people more. And, you know, like I said, we know the story, we, we get it. Let's, let's talk about the people who are making this stuff because those are the people who are giving us things we love.
0: Yes, that was a wonderful answer. I I couldn't agree more with you. I think um, it's definitely impactful to see the people behind the products and um, especially, you know, those third, fourth, fifth generation family members who, are part of the brand or who have worked at the distillery for you know decades I think it's it's very impactful and like you said just tells a more meaningful story about you know this iconic brand or you know this
1: Absolutely. product that's
0: so tasty and that you you know look at on your shelf every every day but um well, that was also, kind
1: of I think it sort of like gives you a bit of confidence like if you hear the story of like uh, let's say Freddie Johnson at Buffalo Trace so he's his family has been working at that distillery for multiple generations through, all the way back to slavery in America. Mm-hmm. His family has been working in whiskey and that, that distillery, so, and he is passionate about that whiskey and that distillery, and that is multi-generational. So, you know, if he believes in it that much, it's hard not to believe in too two.
0: Definitely. Um, that kind of takes me into my next question um, about, you know, how you get your readers interested in a brand or in a story um you know is it with the the stories of the people you know seeing the faces behind the product um and and or even how you're mentioning you know the sustainability and responsibility side of it too i know more and more brands and um you know organizations are getting involved with you know like the white oak initiative and um you know the average consumer might not know about that and um you know how that is such uh, an important process especially with you know bur- bourbon making
1: yeah i think you know sorry bottles everywhere um <laughs> for me like with uprocks right now the focus is very much consumer uh education on bottles like what to buy um that's our main focus from my end mm-hmm. we try to augment that with stories of the people so i'll do you know an interview with um, Andrea Wilson, who's a master of maturation emitters, and, and talk about maturation and what that means and how she, uh, you know, is able to create whiskey through her experience, you know, working with Diageo and, you know, becoming, you know, now a, a Hall of Fame uh, bourbon maker. And so it, it, but that is, it's a balance, right? Because at the end of the day, I'm doing a job. like I have you know, responsibilities for the amount of, uh, work i put out and a lot of that work has to you know has to get views it has to be something that's read and so since it has to be something that's read, you need to focus on getting information to people inside of that you know without getting too insider baseballs you know, just because you have to write something that you know needs to hit a certain mark uh to get people's eyes on it doesn't mean you can't be creative doesn't mean you can't still put out information you've got to find the balance of being able to put out something that people are actually going to read and then making sure that that information is actually there because at the end of the day, you know, I'm published, we're publishing on the internet where there are a million other things pulling people's focus.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's so cool
1: to get that focus, even if it's for, you know, three to four minutes where they read through a post, better be really good what's in that post and show, uh, you know, something that they want to come back for. And so to do that sort of, way i position what i do is you know as opposed to just listing new bourbons i will give you in-depth tasting notes on those new bourbons you know we'll run blind taste tests as opposed of whiskeys and put them sort of up not so much up against each other but like i'll rank them by taste by how good they taste based on the depth of flavor and how the quality of what's in the bottle as opposed to just okay here's a list of 10 bourbons with tasty notes from the brand And and a link to the price, where it's like, okay, I can kind of get that by just typing bourbon in totalwine.com or reservebar.com, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, the 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 extra layer of personal depth from someone who who has an expert palate is what we try to corner in the market, where you know, you know, you can come to me, and you know, I my palate's very sought after in the industry, and I don't say that to brag; I just say that matter of factly. Um, you know that I'm not going to lie to you. Like, this is what I taste here. This is how I feel about it. And, you know, I'm also very, very clear in that, hey, this isn't for me. This is made amazingly. It's beautifully structured. It has great depth. It's not for me, but it might be for you. And I think that's important to, again, uh, going back to positivity, keep that positivity up. Because, you know, I, I will say, like, this is a pass. Like, I wouldn't even bother, even if it's beyond the flavor profile the flavor profile isn't one really important what's important is like this is a faulty product you know and therefore don't waste your money on it that's different if the product is faulty I'll tell you the product is faulty if the if I don't like the flavor profile but the product is still a quality product I'll tell you it's a quality product and this might be for you it's just not for me and I feel that gets lost with a lot of people where the way the internet works the way you know social media works you know uh, not too swear too much but you know shit posting obviously gets clicks and um some people fall into that very dark well of you know being negative for the sake of being negative having to find fault for the sake of fault to have something to talk about and i kind of keep a very big distance from that because i don't believe in it i don't want to traffic in that either i don't need to traffic in negativity to get clicks i don't need a traffic in in finding fault for the sake of fault to get famous or get respect, because it never works out. It never ever works out. Like if you're trafficking in fault or shit posting for the sake of shit posting, no one's going to care of what you have to say. Besides the other shit posters who are laughing because they have nothing else to laugh at, and that's just you're never going to get anywhere with that because you don't need to decry someone who's you know put their blood, sweat, and tears into finally getting the whiskey on the shelf uh for the sake of getting clicks i can easily say hey this isn't there yet i would wait two or three more years when their whiskey's age longer without being like oh this is terrible don't buy it i was like mm-hmm. yeah there's promise here but sometimes there's not sometimes it's like no it's this is a pass this is a hard pass you know and that's that um but you know it, it's sort of it's it's finding that balance i like to keep positivity at the forefront and i always look at the um, my ethos and criticism, it comes from Roger Ebert, where he said very wisely that he was writing about a film, and I apologize, I don't remember which film. He's writing about a film that he really didn't like, it was a comedy, he really, really didn't like it. And he says, the, the key is writing a review of a film that you don't like, without making the people who love it feel stupid.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I sort of carry that with me as my North Star when writing about Whiskey. Just because I don't like, uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Just because I don't like Lefroy, because of the, uh, like, ace bandage, briny, ridiculously heavy, peated uh, phenols and smokiness and ashiness and asphaltiness, like, I still respect the product because it is 100% well and expertly made. It's just not for me. I prefer a subtler peat like an Italisker. That's more for me because that's my palate how it is subjective, the process is objective. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, again, I that might be a little bit too long-winded an answer, but that's sort of my POV on that.
0: Yeah, no, um, I think your answers are um, fabulous. I think that is wonderful advice, um, especially for, you know, up-and-coming writers or, you know, people who are just, you know, wanting to learn more about you or, or the behind the scenes of, you know, of what you do, you know, as, as a writer and, um, you know, as a a taster of whiskeys, um, I think having, having that point of view, um, and an open mind, um, is key, so I feel like that's wonderful advice, and, um, kind of brings me into my next question too about, um, you know, how do you choose the spirits that you review, and, um, you know, do you have favorites that stand out to you? I'm sure you've reviewed so many over the years, but, um, any that, you know, make your, your top list, um, time and time again?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh part of it is exposure right so like the more you drink something you more your palate's going to get attuned to it and the more you're going to crave it that's sort of how our palates work um that said you know i'm i taste an incredible amount of whiskey and spirits every year i think i'm already close to a thousand pours this year so far wow Of um, uh, mostly whiskey but also tequila and rum and gin and flavored gins and rtds and You know, the list goes on and on, and you can't keep a catalog of all those things in your brain, right? So I have to have a a notebook where I write everything down that I taste.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And to be clear, I taste, not drink. So when I taste something, it's about the sensory experience, and I always spit it out um, like you would with wine or beer or anything else. Mm And there are 100% things I go back to, like I, I will go back to, uh, you know, a like house for 18 or 25 as what I would pour at the end of my day. Uh, if I'm looking for a scotch, and if I'm in a bourbon mood, I might go for an Eagle Rare 10 or a Nickters 10 year. Um, or I i know, right now, E.H. Uh, e. Taylor rye has really been hitting for me as a both a wonderful end of the day pour over a rock or in a cocktail. Uh, like a Manhattan or old-fashioned. And it's just, but that's what I have access to. You know what I mean? So, you know, I I also love wild turkey. Like a wild turkey rare breed is an amazing pour of whiskey. Um, And the thing is, though, I also have to look at it like this, or I also live like this in that I'm, you know, some days I'll taste 30 or 40 whiskeys before noon. The last thing I want to do at the end of that day Pour another whiskey because I can't mm-hmm. just, just enjoy it because I've been inundated all day. You know, it's like you, know, you, you, you know, if you if you're making cakes all day, I kind of don't want to go home and eat cake.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so, when I you know I don't really drink that much um, outside of socially. Like when if I go to an event, I might have an old fashioned or I'll have a pour or something like that. But also in the same thing, like I'm in a social situation, it's usually for work as well. So when I go to a bar in the evening, you know, it's an industry night or it's a tasting of this or that. So I'm at work still. So I'm just tasting, not drinking. Mm-hmm. And that is good for my health in that I don't actually drink that much alcohol. Right. I'll have, you know, my wife and I will go out for beers on Friday night and I'll have a beer, um, and maybe a glass of wine with dinner, you know, maybe a glass of champagne here and there. You know, if we're you know celebrating or something like that, um, you know, I'll, I'll meet friends and you know we'll have we'll share a whiskey, you know, because usually when I meet a colleague or a friend, it's like you know we found something and you have to try it, you know, we get excited, we're like, oh, you have tried this? Have you tried that yet? And so mm-hmm. when it comes to how I decide what to drink and things like that, it, it's just such a huge. I'm so deep in that it's almost I almost don't decide. It's just a natural occurrence because I get sent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bottles i get i judge at events where i taste hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pours Mm -hmm. Um, i go to tastings like yesterday i was at four roses and we tasted through all 10 recipes plus extra stuff um you know so you end up tasting like full 15 things in the course of an hour or two and that's just one you know trip to four roses that day Mm -hmm. um and i have tons of bottles on my desk right now i need to get through and there's on my desk right now i have so-called oh, I have a, a peated bourbon I have rye I have mezcal I have tequila I have some gin I have single malt. mold um, a whole bunch of single barrel stuff like just tons of different stuff with ryes blah 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 and that's just my desk right now like mm-hmm. you know it's sort of and that that is really driving what I decide to focus on with, with drinking. when it comes to writing it's sort of as well you know it is very much you know what do we what do I need to get out with it I know people will eyes on and click on and so that does come down to keywords but that's just that's that's just part of the job whereas like when i make a choice for work what to drink it's it's driven by i need to know what's new i need to be up to date i need to be able to have the conversations when i go to these events i need to be able to be up to date when i'm talking with someone like you where you know oh, just as an example buffalo trace just released a peated bourbon you know that's new that's exciting mm-hmm. i need- be someone who knows what that is otherwise i'm not doing my job right right you know and uh that's what's kind of exciting about it but that's also what the grind is right like you know you you, you to keep up you got to keep up and uh, it takes a lot because there's just so much now that no one can live at all no one's gonna ever be able to you know try everything that came out in just bourbon in one year much less irish and scottish and japanese and Indian and south African and australian and et cetera et cetera, et cetera so it's just uh you know, it is a little bit like you're always kind of trying to, you know, play keep up, but you know, you do the best.
0: For sure. Yeah, that was, um, thank you for that insightful, you know, response. I think, you know, people who, who read your articles as well um, might just think, you know, yeah, you sit around and, and drink whiskey all day, but that's not the case. And I know, you know, behind the scenes, there's so much more that goes into it and, and how you choose um, what to review and, and how to review it and share about it. So um, I
1: mean, ironically, I don't drink that much whiskey. I drink right. Any of whiskey. Like, if, like I said, I'm, I'm close to a thousand pours this year so far, so I've tasted an insane amount. Drinking-wise, it's you know, I'm drinking like very rare. A few pours a week sort of thing. And then there, and when I do drink whiskey, I, I'm very picky about what I'm going to drink because mm-hmm. I don't want to waste that pour, right? Because it's like uh, my my boss has a great saying. He you know, He's an old-school travel editor and writer, and whenever you're on the road you never want to waste a hungry on a bad meal and so like i feel the same like you never want to waste a pour of whiskey on a bad whiskey
2: Mm -hmm.
0: definitely yeah that's very insightful and especially as well about you you know keeping up with the trends i mean it's the same with any industry with with um you know fashion with food with social media with you know whiskey bourbon spirits you just you have to you know there's so much going on and um, a lot of exciting and new things, and um, just always kind of, you know, being that expert that you know your followers and your readers um, can go to you and trust you. So um, I know it's it's hard work, but it's exciting work, and um, I appreciate you sharing, um, you know, some of the behind the scenes um, about what you do. So um, my final question, as as we wrap up today's episode, um, can you leave us with your best piece of advice, either for you know, whiskey writers and, and enthusiasts or or even just consumers and um, who are looking to, you know, learn more about whiskey in the spirits industry.
1: For sure. I think answer the first question, like if you're a writer in general, uh, whether it's blog posting or, or any of that, if you're working for any organization, my best advice is have a succinct pitch for your editors. And when you turn that piece in, it should be as close to polished as humanly possible, so that editor can press publish as quickly as possible. Um, you know, yes, they are editors and they're supposed to edit, and they'll edit for the voice of that site. But you, it's on you to make sure that every column is in the right place, that you have a clear, concise structure, and that it is fact-checked, you know, three times over. You know, that is, you know, is. Much of the work that you can do excellently on your end, the better, um, because that will mean that that editor is going to come back to you because they can trust you to turn in something that they don't have to spend all day on. You know, um, that is, and you know, I one of the ways to accomplish that is when you think you're done uh, polishing a post, stop, read it out loud, and do another edit based on that, and another proof based on that. Um, mm always helps. It's a it's a rider thing and not specifically for spirits or food or travel or anything just in general. Um, it's the best advice I can give there as someone who edits freelancers and who has been edited um, and working in this industry for almost a decade now. Um, when it comes to spirits, I would also say if you want to get into this industry, it's on you to build up a network. Like, you know, Yes, you can work for Vintner or Uproxx or whomever, and they will have contacts. Of course, they will. Um, and you know the point is, but the point is, you need to build relationships with marketers and PR people and distillers and and brand ambassadors and bartenders and you know that when you do that, then you'll be heading in the right direction. And it is very much about. Putting a spotlight on the people you love and it comes back to people again which i was talking about before you know people are what make the difference like if you're you know have good relationships with the right pr people you have good relationships with the right brand ambassadors and the right lenders and distillers and even all the way up to the right owners and marketers directors then you will have an easier time period like don't ever expect anybody to serve you that stuff on a silver platter like You know i i've spent because i was coming from um the high-end cocktail bar scene i'd already spent years building up a network through going to BC's, bcb berlin bar convent berlin which is a huge international trade show for the spirits industry mm-hmm. and so i already brought those contacts with me when i started working for uprocks which greatly greatly accelerated my ability to write about drinks in uh online space and so Build a network, build it well, build it deep, and build it fast, and that will help you uh, excel in this industry as a drinks writer, critic, however you want to process it. And with that as well, it will also give you other opportunities to, you know, eventually if you are able to build a palate, you know, that is respected, it will get you into judging, it will get you into barrel picks, it'll get you into consulting as well, where so you can have multiple streams streams of income as opposed to. Just relying on you know getting pitches picked up. Granted, this is all finite. There's you know there's already a lot of people in the space, but there's it's always growing too. It's constantly growing. There's always new brands. There's always new space. There's always new ideas. Um, so don't think that there's a famine mentality or there's a saturation point. Um, you know there if if you put in the time and really devote yourself to building your talent, building your network. And building your ability to turn things in on time and as polished as possible, you can make it pretty fun. Um, you know, and when it comes to you know, building that palette, it's just about tasting as much as you can. You know, I like just to break down my year. I'm traveling to Scotland, going to distilleries. I'm traveling to whiskey bars like, you know, Jack Rose in D.C. or the Ballard Cut in Seattle or... You know, I even like small esoteric bars in iverness Scotland, you know, that, that have stuff that you just don't get other, other places. I'm tasting whiskeys there. I'm going to events and tastings with distillers at distilleries in Kentucky and in Texas and in California, and et cetera, et cetera. I'm purposefully seeking out new bottles. Plus, I'm also, uh, because of where I am in the industry, I'm getting offered bottles and tastings sent to me at a non stop rate. I mean, if I'm I'm away for a week I'll come home and I'll have 30 boxes stacked up wow. in my room. um you know and so you but you have to put in the work you have to you know build your palette and you have to build your knowledge base um in the actual stuff like you know you you can kind of you can have an opinion of course you can have an opinion because we all have a palette and all palettes are subjective that's fine but you know you can you need to build that like we all started somewhere I started somewhere I started with Talisker and Scotch and, then I moved into you know high-end Kentucky bourbon and now you know I extended that into everything else of course but it took time and you have to put in that time and you have to that work there's no shortcut to a refined palette you have to do that yourself um, and some people do have a better sense they do have a talent for it I absolutely you know there that does exist out there some people can, they can just naturally taste things a little bit more clearly uh, than other people. So they don't have to work on it quite as hard, but they do still have to work on it to expand it and keep it up just the same. Uh, because again, this is a constantly moving and evolving industry. So you have to keep on the forefront of this stuff. Um, and don't be don't forget to try things over and over again, like, you know, the, a whiskey I tasted in 2007, that I thought I loved, I'll taste it again now. And I'll I think I'm crazy for even considering that I love that, you know, because mm-hmm. again, palates grow and change and evolve. Um, sometimes they devolve too if you don't keep them up. That's key. Like, you can lose your palate. Uh, so keep an eye on that. I'm, I'm talking very specifically about drinks writing now, um, but keep an eye on your palate. Always, always be evolving it and not devolving it. Always be trying new cuisines, new foods, things that you, you know, you think you hated as a kid, try them again now. Try them a year later try them five years later because your palette's going to change and um again maybe your opinion won't change about that thing but your palette might uh well well, but um and so always always be looking to advance what you what your main tool is and that your main tool is your palette um that you need to keep replying just like a singer would a singer has to make sure their throat and voice is taken care of very well so that they can do their job. That same is true for us. Like, you know, if I burn out my tongue or if I lose my sense of smell and taste from COVID, like I'm screwed for mm-hmm. X amount of time. Like I can't work for X amount of days tasting whiskeys with the in of and, and if you have to, you know, start building up again, that's, that's a, you know, it's going to be pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, of course you have to, you know, do the business end, it, you know, be a good writer be polished be you know super cognizant of what you're turning in and you're working with and building your network but you also really need to have a strong power in your arsenal so that you can you know kind of advance in this job because that's one thing that can't fake like you know it, you can kind of i mean yeah people can plagiarize on the internet all they want and people do but when you're in the situation and you know you're you're there with 20 other people and you you know you're, you can't take a pallet, like you just can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so yeah, that those would be my three sort of tenets of advice.
0: Yeah. No, I appreciate that, Zach. Um that is very insightful and um I think it's all about a balance, like you were saying, and um you don't want to burn yourself out and and you have to but also you know build yourself up and and work hard at it and um, I appreciate you sharing, you know, your journey um, as a, as a writer and, and in this industry. So um, I, I know our listeners will be very excited to, to hear. And um, I think it, it also helps us, you know, as we do read your articles and, and read your stories, um, you know, how you go about that. Um, I think it's, it's very insightful to know. So I appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us today.
1: Anytime. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, was a nice conversation
0: well thank you so much zach um well you can find zach um in some of his articles um on uprox.com. um zach is there any um closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with today
1: um no just uh you know remember that to enjoy whiskey you don't have to always drink it you can just taste it um and uh you can follow me on at uh, instagram on ztp whiskey if you want to see a bit more of uh, what my day-to-day work life is like it's all professional that's a uh, not a personal handle at all Uh, and yeah like you said uprocks.com if you want some uh, whiskey reviews and ideas of where to find some good whiskey
0: amazing well thank you so much Zach appreciate your time today
1: thank you so much Sydney talk to you soon
0: all right everybody that wraps up today's episode of Eat Drink Social thanks for listening if you have a story
2: to share or know somebody that does feel free to reach out to us